Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rashi's World. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Daniel Pick, who is the this year's Sigourney Award recipient. Um, how are you doing? And congrats. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm here in London, and it's late at night, uh, different time to the US, but um, I'm looking forward to talking to you. And that's the power of Zoom, and uh, here it's sunshine, and it's bright day, so there we go. Yeah, I'd like to start off with the toughest question first, and then it gets easier after that. How would you briefly describe yourself to our audience here? Um, I'm a middle-aged or elderly middle-aged um, psychoanalyst here in London, where I trained at the British Psychoanalytical Society. I'm also a historian. Uh, I have a background originally in literature and then in history. And I, I taught for many years uh, at universities uh, for the longest period at London University. Um, and I have an interest in cultural history and the history of ideas. Um, and increasingly, in, in since becoming an analyst, um, I've brought these things together by exploring really the history of psychoanalysis and also debates about what psychoanalysis might contribute to understanding the historical past. That's wonderful. And the Sigourney Award really underlines the uh, psychoanalytic part as well, but also kind of the interdisciplinary approach too, which uh, you are having here and putting things together. And I love that because it's like, it's not just one way of seeing things, but you're combining various fields together and making a whole lot of that. Is that correct? That's right. And I've had for, you know, a very long period, um, a, a place both in the university world and in the very much sort of, you know, in the psychoanalytic world, and I'm a clinician, I work, I have a, a private practice in London. I've, I, I'm very much involved in that now and the Institute here. I've just recently retired from uh, the, the position I had at Birkbeck College, University of London. Having run, I should perhaps also just say by way of introduction that I had the opportunity, I've had various fortunate um, uh, uh, developments of grants from funding bodies but most recently and relevantly for our discussion i was fortunate enough to have um uh funding from the welcome trust which funds history of medicine and the med medical humanities for a project that was for a team of researchers doctoral students postdocs scholars to to, to to meet together over a number of years to think about the history of brainwashing and hidden persuasion so that was also something I think that's uh, that was a real opportunity led me to writing about it, but also to interacting and collaborating with a whole range of people in the UK and around the world. And there's a wonderful segue because I wanted to talk about your book. So your book is Brainwashed, A New History of Thought Control. And just the title is not only fascinating, but I feel it's very relevant. It's very timely too. So what would you briefly say, what is actually the definition of brainwashing? Because that's something, and some people don't like the term and so it's uh, throughout history. And uh, I think it started off really after World War II and the Nazis to like, where you had these polarization already uh, between here communists and the Nazis and fascism and so on. So yeah, how, what would you agree? How would you agree to explain that term to us? Yes, I mean, I got interested in that project via another project, which was on psychoanalysis, fascism and Nazism. And that was an earlier book I did called The Pursuit of the Nazi Mind that was looking at clinical, in, clinical involvement in the war effort, 
uh, well, actually, even interwar, but wartime and post-war, in trying to understand fascism and Nazism and the role of psychoanalysts on both sides of the Atlantic. And through that project, uh, I realized there was another story, really, which was about the Cold War and the language of the mind. And of course, I'm interested both um, as an analyst, where the questions about influence and um, persuasion have always been there since Freud's time, um, both the real and imagined ways in which there can be mutual interference or unconscious transmissions or at worst coercive influence between the participants. So um, I think it comes up in psychoanalytic literature in many ways, including I was very fascinated by an early paper by Freud's follower uh, Tausk, Victor Tausk, about schizophrenic patients uh, and their um, perception or delusion that they were all controlled by what he called an influencing machine, which was which Tausk described in its kind of mechanical, a mechanical contraption with wires that would be controlling their brains and their minds and their movements. And even Tausk says in some of the, uh, the patients' um, uh, uh, perceptions of this, the doctor's mind as well, that there would be a machine orchestrating. So that would be an extreme and sort of psychotic version. But I think of also of an ordinary everyday anxiety. How much am I being myself uh, given freedom to think and to explore and how much am I being nudged or persuaded? So I think those questions are, are, are part of the way we are always going to be engaging psychoanalytically and the ideal of what Freud thought of as free association. So the patient, the invitation to the patient really to not have any pressure not no hypnotism he abandons all that say what you like and the attempt to free the mind but always then this question and the anxiety that there may be about influence and so on in politics though and in culture brainwashing had a real as you were suggesting in your question um you know takeoff point after the second world war although there's always been and we can go back much earlier for other kinds of words we have for the takeover of the mind, uh, mind control, you know, words like uh, possession um, or um, uh, mesmerism, which came from mesmer, uh, you know, animal magnetism, suggestion, um, you know, thought control, those. So it's a, it, there's an older history, but I think um, post-war, there's a very specific set of anxieties uh, in, a, in a polarized Cold War world of the communist, block. Uh, it's just after the creation of the People's Republic of China that the word is coined in the English language, brainwashing, 1950. It comes in both in England in, in, in a newspaper and in the United States, but also in various intelligence documents with the CIA. But And the word is meant to be, a, a, is, is, is presented in this first formulation as a translation. The, the, the warning is the Chinese have this term, and this is a translation of a Chinese term for the cleansing of the mind. Um, and and the obviously the, the context for the American and British journalists and security and intelligence people who are writing about it is communism and the battle for the mind in the Cold War. The sort of sense that the post-war period is, is one of a kind of Manichaean all-out struggle of ideas in which there are, there's propaganda and powerful new techniques for, 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 in a way, influencing, persuading, and at worst, brainwashing people into certain 
sets of beliefs. So that's where it takes off. And then it goes through various iterations in the 1950s linked. I mean, it really takes off at the end of the Korean War, the first major military conflict of the post-World War period, um, where POWs get caught in in this um up in this in this debate um and a bunch of american pow's who have been held by the north koreans and chinese and who elect to go and live in china uh, after the un orchestrates um a prisoner swap arrangement there are thousands of pow's on both sides and the idea which is actually very much pushed by the americans at this point is that communist prisoners prisoners who are in China, as it were, or North Korea, should not be forced back into their communist homelands. They should have a freedom to leave and be allowed to choose. But there are this, and some, many of them do, but there are this smaller group of American GIs, one British soldier who, given the choice and having been held captive, say, we want to go and live in Mao's China. And that, that immediately generates this debate. How could they possibly freely choose this, they must have been, quote, brainwashed. Now, I find psychoanalysis is wonderful here because it's it's like a superpower, like you, you're given that, but like anything, like even like nuclear power and so on, it could be misused. And I find it troubling that there were a, a lot of uh, people who, who mined that and used it for their own purposes. And so they, uh, Henry Murray comes to mind with, with his, his research he did on uh, Ted Kaczynski and, and basically the what he created was a monster through through those experiments and it became the Unabomber. And I think that is the troubling aspect of it too. The dark side, if you like, of psychoanalysis. On one side, you gain freedom and liberation and personal as well. I've, I've experienced myself. But on the other side, it could be misused and it could be used with an agenda. And I think it's that kind of like either or principles that we see even at play today, but it's, which is a lot of it is unconscious. So we don't even realize we're being controlled, but we are in many ways, whether it's advertising, whether it's media, whether it's again, movies, culture and so on. So what can we do about that of like, you know, realizing the, the dangers that are inherent in that? I mean, there are, you know, in a way the gross forms of uh, co you know, conversion, um, coercive influence that I think is part of the history of all of the what one might call by the shorthand the psi professions, PSY of psychiatry, <laughs> of psychology, um, group group therapy, group psychology, and of course psychoanalysis too. So there's the gross forms of of this that one um, can decry, where it has been used explicitly for purposes other than the welfare of the patient uh, in the sense of Freud's ideal and the ideal we still all as analysts, you know, um, aspire to, which is about enhancing freedom. Uh, there's the gross forms and then there's the more subtle questions about how even a well-meaning analyst, including Freud, of course, may have at times strayed into a kind of persuasion uh, um, you know, of, of something that is not simply, um, as it were, upholding the ideal that he sets of an abstinent figure who allows the patient. So, and I think one should also say that even when it's practiced properly, psychoanalysis has always aroused the anxiety that it is in the business of manipulation, a dangerous science. And of, there's, you know, many aspects to that story, including 
um, you know, the, 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 the idea that this was a Jewish science, that it could be dangerous to Gentiles, that, that by the interwar period, some of the discourse, as Freud had long anticipated, would be anti-Semitic and, and would sort of, in a way, stir a kind of paranoid anxiety about the power of the analyst. But Which I think is why the, he chose Jung as a potential yeah, uh, successor, yeah. but that didn't work out uh, that didn't well. Worked out well, and they split. And then Jung yeah. later wrote a paper in the thirties that was, um, you know, a very um, dubious and ominous paper about that in the thirties about the Jews and Gentiles and the danger of the Freudian method. You know, that sort of strayed into this. Very um, disturbing territory, really. But but indeed, Freud attempts to widen. But I was going to say that there were also critics right the way through the the 1910s, 20s, who say for, the psychoanalysis takes away the free will of the patient, that it, it that it immobilizes and um, people regress, and that it's a very dangerous pursuit. You know, who are critical even when it's practiced properly, as it were. But well, I think what you're Sorry, who, but, who, comes sorry? To mind? who were those critics who were criticizing? Well, I mean, there, there were there were articles in medical journals in, in the UK, for example, and in popular magazines, some of them that were about this sort of, you know, this Hebrew dangerous Jewish figure. I mean, you can find in the Athenaeum and other sort of, you know, literary magazines, things about... Um, the foreignness of psychoanalysis to Britain, and this, and the, you know, the Germanic, the idea of something that's that's alien um, and that, that that that's immoral or amoral, or you know, I think all of Freud's early work stirs up a lot of anxiety as he writes about himself. Um, so you find it in 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 magazines and journals um, in that period. The question of of the freedom of the patient, but I think what you were more getting at in your question is is the post-war period and again back to the cold war and the way in which um you know intelligence organizations in the west i mean notoriously the cia develop projects that are meant to be that are, that are that are presented as a as a counter to what uh, is being done on the other side in mobilizing the human sciences and communist ideology bringing them together with new scientific techniques that are going to devastate the mind, that are first going to break the mind, not just of prisoners, but in a way of captive populations, that there's a kind of almost like a sort of blitzkrieg on the mind, a sort of total assault, mm -hmm. and that then there will be the infiltration of a completely alien ideology into the captive mind, and that therefore the West needs to develop countermeasures, both of resistance for soldiers who might be captive. So the question of resilience, but also to understand these techniques. And there are these, these projects which later come to be unearthed through freedom of information requests later on. But, but you know, with, with code names like MKUltra and the Kubark manual that are now available online, that they're, they're, they're publicly accessible, but were originally secret programs to explore sensory deprivation and overload and the use of LSD and drugs and all sorts of repetitive messages um, that, are, that are part of that history that did also involve clinicians who were funded directly or um, covertly through the CIA and other agencies in that period. And that, that came, I mean, there was also a revival of interest as in the amongst researchers, of course, in the context of the so-called war on terror 
and those those concepts later on under Bush Jr., that administration, so-called enhanced interrogation, and how that sort of um, that those endeavors were really backshadowed by this set of experiments in the 1950s and 60s. There's also like a gradual progression there. And I'm thinking of cults and I've had uh, uh, previous ex-cult members uh, also on my podcast. And it's like, and they would uh, object to the term brainwashing because they say like, we were actually, we're, we're not ignorant people, we're intelligent people, but we, we they caught us in a way with uh, this gradual progression, I would think. And when we look at cults, I mean, you basically give up your will and freedom to the leader, whoever that is. But we do the similar thing also on a larger scale. And it's not, they're not called, called cults, but they're called political parties in some ways or movements and so on. And I find the, the danger is how it's, you're slowly, uh, they're enveloping you slowly more and more. And in the end, you realize that you are actually in trouble. You might not even realize that. I'm thinking of uh, Philip Zimbardo's uh, prison experiment where it went astray with him at the helm. And when another person joined them, he's like, this is madness, but nobody sees it because they're so in, entrenched in their views. So, and I feel that in many ways, the world is going in that direction and we keep going, it's like this rabbit hole and we keep going deeper and deeper into it without really waking up and saying, wait a minute, this is, this is crazy. I think you're right. And the Zimbardo experiments or the Milgram experiments on obedience, you know, um, were very influential and important in 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 trying to create almost sort of a laboratory for study and group processes and our propensity to get drawn into either passive you know um, obedience or into more cruel sadistic punitive uh, states of mind and to sort of study so so I think the history of psychological experiment is important of course the ethics of those experiments has also then been explored and critiqued. But I'd like to take it back further because I think in my interest in brain, in the story that, you know, in the story that I try to investigate in my book, Brainwashed, is really both what's specific to this period, post-war of experiment, you know, either benign or nefarious and, and you know, uh, cruel and manipulative. But, it, but th that story is backshadowed by a longer history. I mean, you've mentioned fascism and Nazism, um, but I think it goes back earlier. I think when you're saying political parties, you're taking us to, a, you know, in a way almost like one, where does one start that story? Because I think all the way through the 19th century, the question of crowds and power, you know, from the French Revolution on, in a way, the idea of the crowd as an actor that is going to determine the course of history and that can overthrow um, the state becomes, um, you know, an enormously important topic in um, in different fields. I mean, including in literature, of course, I mean, in novels about crowds, I mean, Dickens or Zola later on in the century, but where the crowd becomes a kind of actor. And you get then also the development of a field that comes to be known as crowd psychology by the late 19th century, which Freud is very interested in. So Freud revisits that literature when he writes his 1921 study of group psychology and the analysis of the ego. You know, so I think that period of the late 19th century, really where Freud's formation is one in which not just individual psychology, but mass psychology is, is under the microscope, really. And how do, how do you think about that? 
Can there be a science of the crowd? Um, the, 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 the kind of countervailing idea is the elites. That is another concept from that period. So there's a whole sort of range of ideas. Gustave Le Bon and Gabriel Tard and others who write about this. And Freud really, I think, always is fascinated. And he comes back really to the problem of the hypnotic rapport between the leader and the led uh, and how kind of groups can be corralled and the fantasies and illusions, the, the kind of very archaic forms of love and hate that, that get mobilized. And he's writing about this, of course, just, I mean, of course, in a way, it's a commentary on the problems of the psychoanalytic movement and the forms of devotion and uh, allegiance. I mean, he's in a way thinking about that, but he's also thinking about the First World War and he's thinking about politics, really. And it's just, of course, as the fa fascism is developing in Italy and Germany that he writes this, I think, very, um, in a way, underrated, I mean, extraordinary problematic paper about, about crowds, parties, power. I, I think another person, so when we look at, at Freud and his approach of like being like very scientific, trying to uh, kind of structure according to biology and him as being the surgeon and the clinical and so on, which in, in reali reality he did not practice. It wasn't necessarily like that, but he, he preached it for others. But what I find interesting is Otto Rank, who was his secretary and came up with a different perspective of what we will call relationship therapy and seeing that connection, that, which is perhaps much more important than, than trying to form them a model, the, the patient in a certain way and, or the client in a certain way. So I, I find that uh, quite fascinating, but Freud did not like that. And it was strongly against Rank, even like more bitterly than with, with Jung. But what Rank talked about was pretty much what we're seeing today too, a hundred years ago. The, the difference between here likeness, a psychology of likeness and a psychology of difference. So that in one way, we want to be part of that group and join them. Uh, on the other side, we want to stand out and be different from them and like uh, and, and criticize them when they're doing something wrong. But we get like lost in there and often we lose our own identity. And so when we look at things like communism, which is the idea of equality, which is wonderful, but if it's forced, then that's not helping. The idea of freedom, which is often like um, fascism tries to talk about the freedom and our, our, our free liberties and so on, that is not working either because that's also enforced. So in a way, there's this conundrum. And I think Otto Rank really saw that as a paradox that we need to deal with both at the same time. It's not an either or issue. And it kind of puts them on the same pedestal. It's like, well, communism, fascism, they're not that different in their approach and how they're seeing things, even though the goal, the aim is good, but the means are not necessarily good. I, I, I think that, I mean, post-war, again, there's um, huge attention paid to the similarities and differences between communism, fascism, Nazism, you know, the idea of totalitarianism <laughs> develops um, with Hannah Arendt and others um, in, in the post-war period, you know, 1951, her, her study, but there are others. Um, and, you know, that, you know, one, there's, I think there are lots of academic debates about, um, you know, whether the differences are more striking between Stalinism and uh, Maoism and, you know, Mussolini's Italy and Hitler's Germany and so on. But the idea of some common element um, uh, that, that is more fundamental. The, the, I suppose the danger, I mean, I, I think we were saying earlier that we, you introduced it really with the idea brainwashing is also a very heavily loaded and problematic term. 
So is totalitarianism. And I suppose the danger is one exempts liberalism uh, from scrutiny and one just sort of assumes that's beyond exploration. And it's these other, um, uh, you know, uh, ideologies that that. That, that, that need in investigation. I and mean, I think all political, I mean, the more fundamental point might be, um, which I thought you were raising is, is whether, and that Freud is thinking is really the ways in which we may get drawn into identifications, the role of charismatic authority, reason and passion. I mean, there are the more extreme pathological versions, um, but, but there's the question, I suppose, how much, um, you know, in a way, unconscious fantasy is always in a way at work in politics too, not just rational choices and reason. There may be, of course, far more benign versions of that, those we aspire to, but nonetheless, I think Freud's always inviting us to think about the unconscious dimension. He's more on the rational side, whereas somebody like Rank opens up to the irrational side and says, you know, we, we need to look at that too. And it's not, neurosis is not necessarily a bad thing as long as we can deal with it as a sign of rebellion you you're you're protesting against something because something is wrong instead of imposing your ideas on that which in a way freud did it's like this is my theory and then imposing on you so in a way like anybody disagreed it's like well no, you're you're out you're you're canceled basically which uh, was his i think in a way his modus operandi but i want to focus on the, the, the hang, hang on, hang on. Sure. Yeah. can i just can i just for sure just for one second because I think there's it's it's so complicated. You, there are two issues there. One one is to do with tolerance and intolerance <laughs> in Freud, <laughs> and the other is to, you you've raised is to do with identity with, with with likeness and difference or similarity <laughs> in terms of the individuality. I, I mean, individual it, and I think I think Freud is in a way there's always a complicated double side to this story. <laughs> so I think it it can also get to. Uh, in a way reductive to just say Freud's on the one, you know, I, I take your point up to a point, but I also think it's a counter story to tell about Freud. So on the one hand, one can look, I think certainly a side of Freud that is intolerant, that is, that he's sort of patriarch of the discipline and he, yes. you know, he, he will legislate um, and excommunicate, you know, excommunicate those he does. And so the, the story of, in a way, the um, the breaks, the schisms, is is indeed an important part, as well as also his um, his wish, in a way, to have a vibrant movement and to also allow Absolutely. others to develop ideas. You know, and the question of where the breaking point is, whether it's even with Jung or, you know, there are others. There's Ferenczi, there's Karl Abraham, there's there's then of course you know people like Klein and and others. So I think that he's. Janus faced in that. And I think I wouldn't even agree that he's on the side of reason and rank unreason, because I think he would, again, one could find elements where he's deeply interested and questioning of his own claims to reason. So uh, and disconcerting and, and yeah. in a way, you know, sort of challenging to our fantasies about being reasoning, reasonable, deliberative political creatures but trying to turn it into a science is that direction right so that is the the issue with psychoanalysis which i don't think i think it's it has scientific value of course but it's also beyond that and i think like freud was too obsessed of like trying to fit it into a theory that is scientific in nature which is why he also probably did not approve of jung because he was, jung was taking in a completely different direction which is non-scientific if you like you're getting quotation marks and oh, i think that's um, a fear that you might have had yeah, he had that side and his longing and his aspiration that it would be a science. And one can then debate, well, what would be a science 
of the interior of the mind and the inner world and the unconscious and what other way yeah. can one access it and his invention of the consulting room as the space the frame in which this could be really studied mm -hmm. in depth but i also think when you say that mm -hmm. when he's in a dialogue with einstein in the 1930s that came to be published as why war and mm -hmm. he says at a certain point to einstein well maybe every science in the end comes down to a kind of mythology i mean in other words i think there's also something in freud that both endorses and then undercuts yeah. some of his claims you know it's um and, and i suppose you know the uh, that's the fact that he writes also about war and religion and culture and civilization is is also interesting you know not just the group psychology paper but this movement between an attempt to think about the mind of the patient and the and the psychonetic count encounter and the question which interests me you know as someone with a foot in these two disciplines of Freud's interest always, you know, which is problematic and at times one can think of as wild or reductive, but to sort of in a way take it outside the consulting room into an exploration of groups and cultures, nations, you know, peace, war, civilization, religion, culture, etc. I want to dive into this wonderful discussion. I want to dive into your book, The Pursuit of the Nazi Mind, because that's something I, I grew up in Germany. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite familiar with, with German culture. And I've always asked myself, how could this culture that creates such wonderful music, such uh, awesome literature and so on, create monsters like the Nazis? And so and as, as I'm going through it and I've been reading about it, I saw a recent documentary, Ordinary Men, about how this police force, the regularly regular people who got caught up in it and they started doing these horrendous things. And uh, it just they went along because they got it's like, again, the brainwashing that we can see at work. I was also surprised I'm reading about this, uh, this spy who ended up uh, secretly writing a book, Heinrich Pfeiffer, and uh, it's called Drunken Power. And he, he talks about how all these major figures were actually very young people, first of all, to start off with, which is we never think of like as like young people, but they are uh, still, the brain is not fully developed yet, and you can see that. Then also this image of the, uh, the officer, the virtue, the Prussian virtuous officer, and that kind of model that led a lot of the military people to, to follow this path because they were they were promised a lot of things and and uh, tricked by by hitler who loved himself history books and frederick uh, the great who was his his idol so i think that in a way it's history repeating itself and you have these dictators including someone like putin who is following history and they're trying to bring back the past into their present and by force by deluding others by tricking others and so it changed my perspective of like, you know, these are all evil people and so on. Well, there are people, a lot of people, I mean, there are a lot of evil people there, not in no way like defending them anyway, right? But there are a lot of people who got trapped in this the same way we get brainwashed or we have these cult members and so on who, who get sucked in and do horrible things. So I, I think we have to be very careful not to jump to, uh, to, to judgment there and to conclusions and really see what was really at work. And Heydrich was the uh, one of the most evil ones, and he's not as mentioned, but he was he was like he was worse than somebody like Himmler because uh, he's just just horrible person, right? But we don't hear uh, about that enough in, in history and in discussions. And um, I'm wondering also why is there's a lot that 
you know, you have to dive deep into it to, 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 to find out. It's more at play, it's more complex than it seems, more sophisticated. I mean, listen, there are so many interesting things to unpack in what you just said. I mean, that debate amongst historians about um, Germany's supposedly special way through modern history and books, um, critical reflections on this debate, like the peculiarity of German history. I mean, you also then invoke another example, Russia and Putin. And the question in a way of how much there is a very specific historical story to tell about Germany that culminates with um, the Nazis and the final solution that is a peculiar feature of German history is a debate that also has a prehistory in the late, which I found when I did research on this um, for an earlier book, actually still before the, that, what the one you mentioned, which was called The War Machine, about 19th century ideas about war. Mm -hmm. And there were debates in the 1870s after the Franco-Prussian War about whether there was something very peculiar anthropologically about the Germans and the Prussians that would explain their military, their militarism and so on, or how to understand this. And of course, then there are further iterations of that. And, and I think with what you was, you know, when you, you, you mentioned then Browning's book, Ordinary Men, um, about, you know, these death squads on the Eastern Front and young, young men and the different roles of different people, how people are sucked in or the pressure of the group, the fact that they could also opt not to be it, it wasn't just but it came at an expense right it came, yeah. came at an expense it's ridicule not like expenses like they were not punished but there would be ridiculed by others and that peer pressure really like forces yeah. us to do things that goes against our our, our desire you know it's again very long-standing to understand both you know the masses uh how did su such a big proportion of the german electorate not all but a big proportion vote by the 30s for the Nazi party and the rising popularity. But then also, you know, you, you, you bring in particular notorious Nazi leadership figures, um, you, you know, and, and you know, that, that have also then historically been subject to careful examination and profiles. I mean, you mentioned earlier Henry Murray, um, apropos yeah. of his experiments, but he also did a, a profile of Hitler uh, whilst he was at Harvard that was for the for the um, uh, Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the CIA. And there were others, Walter Langer, who wrote a, a sort of report about Hitler's mind that was later published. And then, you know, so these were wartime endeavors, some of them commissioned directly by intelligence. And then of course, at the Nure around the Nuremberg trial, the role of, of um, psychological experts, uh, psychiatrists, uh, and psychologists and so on in profiling the 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 figure you know the people who are on trial uh, Goering and Hess and there's a real endeavour um, both in the in the UK and the US really to try to learn lessons from this to try to bring psychoanalytic thought to bear and this was kind of what I was trying to look at in the pursuit of the Nazi mind was the role of psychoanalysis um, in this story um of of the war effort and that's in all sorts of ways from uh propaganda you know of of trying to analyze german propaganda radio propaganda uh trying to um have more sophisticated methods of interrogating german pow's debates about um so-called denazification which was a post-war 
project really uh, with the Allies and the Allied Control Commission in Germany that involves American analysts um, like David Levy and British analysts like Roger Money Curl. Uh, there's a, the, the deputy medical director of the Tavistock Clinic in London interested me a lot in that book, Henry Dix, who was um, to become Rudolf Hess's psychiatrist. Uh, as a, This is when um, Dix is an army doctor and when Hess parachutes, uh, uh, lands in, 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 in uh, sorry, lands in Scotland with his Messerschmitt and wants to meet the king and to, you know, comes on this harebrained mission, becomes a prisoner of state. And he um, is, 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 is then studied by his doctors and they end up writing a post-war book called The Case of Rudolf Hess. And I think, you know, I think you were mentioning young people. And I think this is where psychoanalysis post-war where the, the kind of work that's being done by some of Freud's followers on the very early uh, period of life of mothers and babies and fathers and toddlers and children, the kind of work of Anna Freud and Melanie Klein and others, the pioneering interwar work about infancy really becomes relevant in a new way, is understood to be relevant for the reasons you were suggesting of the kind of worry that, that fascists or liberals and you know liberal democrats are kind of made in the cradle or in early life of the fashioning of the subject and this is really i think what fascinated me was how after the war at unesco and the world health organization there's really an important place given to uh, the thinking about the mind and clinical knowledge and infancy and child rearing as a as a sort of central political question for trying to save the world from a, the resurgence of new forms of fascism and totalitarianism. You know, that, that's really um, a key aspect, the idea of mental health as a central political question for the post-war settlement, for the post-war world. I think in many ways it's finding that balance because in, in Germany, the authority figure is important. So teachers were, you were obeyed. Right. And uh, I, I had teachers who did not treat me well in high school back in Germany, in the gymnasium, which was which was commonplace. You can do much about it. And then here in, uh, in Canada, where I'm at, uh, it's much more relaxed and there's actually a lack of respect for authority. And I, I see that troubling as well. So it's like finding that where you do respect it, but you don't become a zombie. And I found like a lot of uh, a German and a German military. Uh, were sucked into that because they thought like duty is important. Whatever the, the Fatherland tells us for, for our country, we have to do for it, even if it includes a, a killing innocent people and, and children and so on. And so uh, that is very troubling. But a lot of military people just said, you know what, I'm getting all these benefits, but that's too much. That's drawing the line and I, I'm out of here. A lot of people did not continue it back with the, the Nazi in the Nazi period. So it's, it's having that awareness where when the line is kind of crossed, that kind of red line, and being able to, which is difficult, it takes a lot of courage to do so, but I think being able to, to balance that and not become a zombie, which I found a lot of people become when they're brainwashed, because they're not thinking for themselves anymore, they're just taking everything, what the leader says, or the leading voice, or whoever that might be. So um, what are ways of uh, where we can encourage that? thinking for yourself. And education is great, but sometimes it's molded too, and especially when it becomes politicized and so on, 
how can we really have free thinking individuals? And my answer would be using psychoanalysis on oneself, right? So to, to free the, the conditions that we have, child rearing as well, and culture. Uh, Rank says you can't spell culture without cult. And there's something to that aspect too. So how can we free our minds as uh, from your experience in terms of clinical experience, or also historical experience too of having all this knowledge and having studied and researched that, what is one way of, of freeing ourselves and thinking for ourselves in today's world, which is, I think, very relevant? I mean, listen, again, there are so many ways one could take that discussion. I mean, you raise questions about policy and education and yeah. uh, child rearing and, uh, what, what, you know, what's the right balance between... We could turn that into a series, actually, I think. Yeah. Freedom. And again, yeah. one, you know, one can think about that and the history of debates about schooling and, you know, in the, uh, in my book on... Which was German influence, right? So strongly the idea of education that we have, it came basically from a German mold as well, right? So our perception. Yeah, and there's a history also of experiment in alternative forms of teaching and education, you know, in Britain and the US, that's kind of a critique of the traditional school model and um and so on you know there was a whole de-schooling movement that in a way is not unrelated to the debates on brainwashing you know the idea of of trying to free to, to free children from this i mean you know the experimental schools go back earlier so we could think about that i think the questions you're raising about authority and freedom is also a clinical issue about how how that operates um you know um the, the, in a way the difference between the position of the analyst and the patient, the inequalities and how much that that is addressed and how, because patients may often feel it's it's very unequal. Mm -hmm. uh, one person's paying, one person's traveling, one, you know, all of the protocols around it and the conventions about about this that, that are bound to stir up feelings. And just patients. like Milgram comes back with a lab coat, just a person in a lab coat tells you to kill another person and you go ahead. So that kind of is in the unconsciously, yeah. we do have that, that kind of like yeah. authority and, figure. And, you know, and the, and the idea in analysis is not to exploit charismatic authority, but to analyze yeah. the, the, the pull towards that doesn't mean it's always successful in, in a way, you know, inviting the patient to think about how they might be drawn into idealization or slavish devotion or you know um supine views or whatever um so these are all very important issues and how much you know the of course there are many experiments like with free clinics or attempts at sort of you know not having money involved for example again this is part of the history of debate of course attempts also to uh, in the relational school uh, in america to think about it in a different way uh, of, of should there even be more openness on the analyst part to talking about their um, feelings and so on. these are debates on both sides of the Atlantic that that go on uh, I think but I, I suppose I want to also bring in at that point when you mention that you know what you say about authority and authoritarianism is part of the story I'm exploring in, in my work on brainwashing because the idea of the authoritarian personality is 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 part of this uh, literature that Adorno and a group of collaborators produced that book in, um, in in the early fifties, which is a kind of question about what is it that draws people towards 
um, you know, um, dogmatic, uh, you know, um, fascistic, disciplinarian, intolerant states of mind and how to think about that. You know, and that was another major investigation, that whole kind of work of people like Adorno and Horkheimer, the Frankfurt School, of trying to use psychoanalysis as well as social theory um, and history to sort of try to understand these, these different forces. So I think really all these debates are interconnected about what is the right kind of education yeah. that will enable people to think and to, and to be able to critically reflect on their own situations uh, and how much, you know, and, and I think psychoanalysis for that post-war period and for us now has to be part of that story really. Again, psychoanalysis is wonderful. I think it should people should should uh, delve into it more. They should read about it more, practice it more because again, it's it's hugely important. But I want to finish here on another uh, thing that happens, and I, I've observed in people, and where people say, "I would never do this," and they think they're they're good. They would, uh, and we had with Milgram who showed that ordinary people could do this. And again, the documentary I saw showed ordinary people doing horrible things. And I think we just, if you think about it, road rage is 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 a clear example that some people are are within seconds, within fractions of a second, they can turn into this monster that you never knew before. And I, I've been like the passenger with a, with a friend who seems very friendly and so on, and suddenly they start shouting and uh, getting really angry. So it's in us, and I think really important to first acknowledge that. And then to learn to deal with that. And that's what I think psychoanalysis does and has done for me by looking at the dark side and bringing it out and, and, and dealing with it instead of like uh, shunning it, avoiding it or, or, or putting it under the car, brushing it under the carpet. I think really dealing with that and then have a way of, uh, of gaining freedom from these dark forces that each of us does carry within us some more than others, but still to, to acknowledge that. I think that what you say, you know, about road rage, I mean, that we all can under pressure re revert to the most, you know, intense, uh, violent, murderous, yeah. um, paranoid states of mind. And hopefully we recover, uh, you know, um, some sense of sanity um, and that there's something that holds us in check, hopefully, uh, from enacting those passions of course we don't always I mean road rage is where someone gets out of it may get out of the car and attack someone yes. else but I think we're all um you know have a propensity to get it that state is very understandable where you you feel in a blind rage and I think I mean I, I think that going back to my interest in brainwashing that I suppose I'd want to say that what I thought was so interesting post-war was the development of a range of ideas not just in psychoanalysis um, and not just in the human sciences or the Frankfurt School, but sort of also in popular culture that were about these sort of states of mind between reason and passion, between mm -hmm. thinking and the collapse of thinking. And you get it in the movies as well, post-war, like the Manchurian candidate, you know, of brainwashing, but, but in concepts like groupthink, in studies of, you know, collective forms of uh, cults of, of uh, stock market crashes, uh, you know, of sort of irrational passions, whether it's in a liberal democracy or in a fascistic state. I and I think that um, attempt is made really to develop concepts and theories that, that try to account for this. I mean, Robert J. Lifton is one of the people I write about in the book who all the way through that period is thinking about this notion of brainwashing 
uh, and cults and what are what are the forces in a society that that may be more or less um, conducive to those states of mind. He writes about closed milieu, sacred languages, you know, sort of rights, sort of, you know, of life over, uh, having the power of life and death over captives and so on, um, uh, purification rituals. He's interested in that. Others are interested in the parent. There's a, another interesting debate about the paranoid style in politics of how our more sort of archaic and infantile feelings can be mobilized, um, you know, conspiracy theory. Yeah, and so, that. so I yeah. thought all these ideas have an afterlife now in the 21st century where we're faced with new conditions, but where these debates about paranoia and reason and conspiracy and, and rage uh, and denial are, are, have never been in a way more relevant. And really where I end the book is with those debates and, and two thinkers who I think address this in very important ways in that period. One is Melanie Klein, mm -hmm. who is one of who I've mentioned already, but really who's sort of trying to articulate this, both in her clinical work with small children, but also in thinking about these infantile states in all of us and what she calls the paranoid schizoid position, as opposed to the, what she calls the depressive position. And our movement you know, hopefully our movement from the one to, to the other. I mean, we always revert, but not stuck in a sort of paranoid state where everything is also split totally between good and bad and, mm -hmm. we, and exactly. so on. Yeah. Um, and the other, the other kind of thinker who I use to think about this with is Hannah Arendt, who, who's writing about politics, where when it works, is a space where people are actually encouraged to come together to think, where there's information, where there's the possibility really of debate, where there's time, it's not all quick fix, it's not closed down. And politics for her is essential. We're political animals. She's got this sort of Aristotelian idea that at the heart of it, we are political creatures, but that the, the, the politics is also a kind of achievement to that this a space where there's real possibility of investigating, debating, arguing without a kind of polarized division into just sort of everyone in their silos or into a sort of dictatorship or a collapse of thinking that this is, is fundamental. So it's really going back to road rage. These these passions in individuals and groups are kind of in a way bound to, to, to erupt. The question is containment in a way and what's what then happens both intrapsychically within the individual or in, 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 a, in a couple or a group, but also at a cultural and political level to deal with these Forces. Yeah, and it's the power of the individual too. I remember A Hidden Life by Terence Malick, the, the film, where it's a farmer who does not want to do the Hitler settlement again, going back to, to, to the Nazi period. And it troubles the Nazis. They even arrest him. They torture him because they cannot believe it that he is not doing the salute. How dare you not fall in, in, into rank with us? But I mean, I think that's it. It's the power that you can stand up. And he was nobody nobody knew him but still he create uh, uh, created headaches and troubles within that structure because he would not follow their rules even though they had I mean, you know, I mean a fundamental um ideal of uh, you know of, of of well actually Marx said doubt every you know doubt everything uh -huh. um any ideology you know any system of thought can become a dogma or an ideology um but I think the power you know I think what one hopes for is the uh, the basic ideal of 
liberal democracy, at least as a basis for deepening de further democracy, is the power to question, to doubt, to be different, yeah. to dissent. Yeah. And that can always be eroded and can collapse, that forces that cannot, you know, you're taking a very extreme example. But if I may yeah. just in a way mention a, a less kind of dramatic, mm -hmm. you know, fascistic example, I was very struck in our project on uh, the, this team-based project that we ran uh, at Birkbeck, we did a project with local schools of inviting teenagers to make films about hidden persuasion. Mm -hmm. And um, if people are interested, they're all free access on a website at Birkbeck called Hidden Persuaders. If people just go Hidden Persuaders Birkbeck on a search engine, they'll find it. And they're on the outreach tab, there are these videos by school kids, teenagers, about persuasion and their three minute films about what those ideas mean to them now as young people growing up in the internet age with Facebook and Instagram, as well as all the other, you know, forces and technological and political and economic pressures. I was very struck by some of them talking about if you say no. I mean, there was, for instance, a young woman saying, even from her peers, the pressure to be on Facebook to present yourself on Instagram and put up photos. And she had um, schoolmates uh, ridiculing her for saying, I don't want to, I'm not interested, and pathologizing and say, what's the matter with you that you're doing this? You must be, um, you, you know, you, there must be something wrong with you. Exactly. This is the norm to uh, to use these technologies and to put your, your pictures up, your poses, your selfies and so on. And she was immediately shamed. And she describes the sort of pressure to, of just being different, of just saying no. I mean, this is a much you know less extreme example, but that's kind of a coercive peer pressure, if you yeah. like. And they, yeah. they made these rather eloquent films about these kinds of pressures to fit in, as well as the addictive quality of in the internet and social media and so on, and, the, and their own struggles to sort of relate to a technology that can be both liberating and life enhancing, but also can have this tremendously um, addictive and coercive pull. What a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much, Daniel. I think, uh, you're a historian, psychoanalyst. Uh, congrats again for winning the Sigourney Award uh, uh, this year. And uh, your book is, uh, for audience again, Brainwashed, A New History of Thought Control. Thank you so much for being on Rash's World. It's wonderful talking to you. Well, well, thank you very much. And I should also say I'm you know, very grateful to the Sigourney Trust for the award and for opportunities also to engage in, in, in dialogues you know, of this kind. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.